Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Really excited to share this interview that I just concluded with Eric Kahn. Who is Eric Kahn? I'm going to tell you in just a second. And even in addition to that, you're going to hear from the man himself who he is and what he does. But before I do, I want to thank all of you that leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. That is such a blessing to Katie and I, not only to see your encouragement, to see that it's blessing you, but it also helps our podcast reach more people. So thank you for doing that. And for those of you that engage on YouTube, that helps our channel grow as well. So thank you for doing that as well. Now, on to Eric Kahn. Who is this? Who is this Eric Kahn? Eric has a degree in sports journalism. He attended seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and has worked for over a decade in the firearms and outdoor media industry as a journalist. He served as a pastor for several years in a small western town, chief of staff at a conservative media company, editor-in-chief at Gun Digest magazine, and various other managing editor roles at Gun and Ammo, Guns and Ammo Publications, and the NRA's Shooting Illustrated. He is the husband to one lovely wife and the proud father to three strapping young sons. When he's not podcasting at the King's Hall and Hard Men podcast, he's probably in the backcountry chasing elk, mule deer, or bear somewhere in the uncharted territory of the West. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this interview with Mr. Eric Kahn. The Now That We're a Family Podcast. All right. Well, Mr. Eric Kahn, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you because there are a handful of topics that I know for me personally, I'm excited to dive into, uh, but I don't want to hog all of the questions and all the conversation. I want, I want our audience to be able to hear uh, about you, about your story, what you're currently working on. And so, you know, maybe actually first, could you kind of just give us in your own words, what it is you're doing now? And then maybe we could back up and hear about your upbringing and, and your life. So when you bump into an old friend and they're like, Eric, you know, what the heck are you doing? What's the answer these days? That's a good question, uh, mainly because uh, when I was in high school, I think I was sort of the class clown joker. And uh, so now, yeah, fast forward many, many decades and uh, pastoring uh, one of the pastors here uh, at Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah, and uh, also part of New Christendom Press. A lot of people, generally the old high school buddies are like, wait, you're like a serious adult now? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am a serious adult now. So that's been really good. Uh, we came out here a few years ago. Uh, really to join the work that the church was doing. So a lot of people will know, like Pastor Brian Sauvé, he's the lead pastor and uh, has a lot of music projects, which, you know, that's the same deal. That's how I got to know these guys. And uh, I had started the Hard Men podcast because I was really looking for ways pastorally to help men, uh, sort of with the issues we were facing, you know, realizing like many people uh, in our culture, there's a real problem with sexuality in general. And so how do we present a biblical answer uh, but that is robust and has teeth and is really useful for today's world. Uh, so really, you know, I was pastoring uh, at a small church in Colorado for a while. And um, I, I said, you know, I, I want to multiply my efforts. I want to join guys who are really leaning into the same plow uh, where we can be not just great individually, but a great tribe and a great team. And so uh, we joined these guys, uh, Pastor Dan Burkholder's here as well. And really started the project with New Christendom Press and media and saying, you know, we, first we have to give people a vision. So the vision that we've talked about is about building the New Christendom, really taking all of life for all of Christ. And that's going to include your business and economics uh, and, and, of course, church, too. So, yeah, we, we really just got, you know, one of the things I've highlighted is men need a gang, uh, a brotherhood. 
And it's something you see in our world quite a lot, actually, is that men don't have friends, uh, particularly adult men. And so I said, well, you know, I've been preaching this message. I've been looking for, for my gang. And uh, what better place to start than, than to, to start with a gang of guys? Hmm, that's pretty cool that that transpired. And you mentioned people needing a vision. And it's hmm. crazy how in every area of life, that seems to ring true. And oh, yeah. something that I find in my own life, when I'm lacking direction, when I'm not knowing what the next thing to do is, it's crazy how slowing down, stepping back and going to God's word and getting a, a definitive vision, something that goes beyond, you know, maybe some of those loose terms like, well, I want to lead a godly life or I want to have a healthy marriage. You're like, well, th that, those are great things, but what does that look like? You know, when that when that's yeah. actually exercised and when that's carried out, what are you doing with your time? And so I, I definitely resonate with that, what you said about needing a vision. Could you back us up? Because like you said, you speak to masculinity so well. It's been a huge blessing to me. You speak to family. You speak to culture. And is that something that's been on your heart since as long as you can remember? You know, were you brought up in a culture or a context where you saw the word being, you know, read and, and lived out in a Christian environment? Or, or what was that like for you? Yeah, so I mean, uh, going back to childhood, uh, I was baptized as a, I think, a Presbyterian at what became the PCUSA Church. Uh, actually, didn't know that for a number of years. Uh, we we had generally attended church. Uh, I would say in a lot of levels, probably nominally Christian. Um, but some of the things my parents always did was like my mom stayed home, um, so there was always a value placed on the children. Uh, households and stuff like that were always kind of the core of. Who, who I was and what I expected uh, really from life. So I remember going to getting to high school. I was a junior. Everybody's getting ready to go to college. And um, I remember at that time, my, my then, yeah, he was going to be my roommate. Uh, but he asked me, he's like, what are you, you going to do? And I said, well, I know of this girl. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go work for her dad. And I'm going to go find me a wife. And of course, in high school, this is like 2002 probably. And, um, you know, my friend was like, you're out of your mind. Nobody is thinking about marriage right now. And I don't really know why. I mean, it was just on my heart that that's what I wanted to do was find a, a quality wife. And I wanted to build a family. So I, I got to know my wife. We were sort of like family friends. So I had known of her and kind of who she was a little bit. Uh, but I remember like the first date, I was like, so what are you looking for in life? And she was like, I want to be a mom. I want to raise a family. I want to have kids. And I was like, okay, I think we can work with this. Nice. Uh, because even, even at that time, like most of the ladies that I had talked to in high school, I was like, what, what do you want from life? And they're like, oh, definitely not children. Yeah, it just sounds horrible. Maybe I'll get a job. And I didn't have like a robust biblical definition of any of that at the time. Uh, but I knew that I was just like, yeah, but that's not what I want. I know that that's not what I want. Um, again, I attribute that to my parents. They always put a premium on family. Uh, my dad always worked really hard to be a provider was something that he had passed on. And so, you know, by God's grace, I had sort of inherited that. And then I think um, after marriage, we were married just uh, about a year and a half later. So pretty young. Her parents told me, and they said, you can marry her, but she has to graduate high school first. And I was like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. And um, so we were in college. Uh, I was working like Office Max at the time. And that's really what was a turning point in my life because I had a coworker, uh, another female coworker, who was a pastor's daughter. And she would listen to the way that I talked to the other coworkers and razz them. And a lot of it was just like rough, uh, you know, worldly kind of kind of language. And she said to me, she said, Eric, you're a Christian, right? 
And I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I mean, I knew the right answer. And she goes, well, that's really interesting because this is not how Christians act. And I was like, whoa, this lady is, she's serious about her faith. And I thought she was super weird. You know, she was like on her break, she was like memorizing scripture and all this, you know, stuff at the time. I was like, this is so weird. Well, I, I think being married plus that, having some influence in my life there, I, there was a weight of responsibility. And I was like, well, I, I have to do something about, you know, leading my wife and future, you know, anticipating children. I got to be prepared for that. So this girl at work, she's like, you and your wife should come to church. And I was like, well, Christians don't have to like go to church. I mean, and I look back and I'm like, it's so cringe. Uh, but God was being gracious to us. So he brought us into that church and uh, we had some people uh, who really just poured into us on the discipleship front. And uh, the guy was like, hey, I want, I want to meet with you every Saturday at like five in the morning. And I was like, why? What is this guy doing? He, he, you know, he's testing me. He's pushing me. He's trying to get me to be a man. And uh, it was really fruitful. Honestly, uh, he introduced me to a lot of what we would call now young, restless and reform preaching. Uh, it was sort of the Mark Dever, John Piper, CJ Mahaney world, which introduced me to reform theology, uh, really was pivotal in my life because for the first time I was like, wait a minute, like family, wanting a family and uh, wanting to lead your household. Well, this isn't just like a cultural 1950s thing. This is actually in the pages of scripture. And so here you had guys who were teaching on the family. Like I remember early on listening to John Piper and it was like, you know, Genesis 2.15, men have a responsibility to provide and protect. Like, okay, so there's actually a reason why men are providers. There's actually a reason biblically, Genesis 1 through 3, that women are supposed to be uh, this, this fulfilling this high calling of motherhood. Uh, you know, the word matrimony actually just means like prepared for marriage, like prepared for motherhood. That's what you're aiming at. Uh, with a wedding. So I think a lot of those things really started to shape me. Uh, eventually, I had no idea uh, what I wanted to do other than uh, the guys around me at church were like, I, I think you have like a lot of pastoral giftings. And so I was like, well, I want to go to seminary, but I, I have no clue where. We are sort of like a non-denominational Bible church. So I went on Desiring God and I was like, where should I go to seminary? And like the number one thing that was on there on John Piper's list was Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So I go there and people are like, are you a Southern Baptist? And I'm like, I'm whatever I need to be to go to the seminary. I don't <laughs> even know what that means, really. So that was great. Uh, went there, uh, really started developing a lot of theological positions and working through, you know, uh, the languages and stuff like that, learning how to exegete passages of scripture. That was sort of the beginning of really understanding like what the high calling of both a father, husband, and pastor were going to be. Um, and then somewhere in there, I I really decided, I was like, I'm like 22, 23 years old. So at this point, I've graduated college. We have one son. And I was like, I don't think I want to be a pastor at 22. I want to be a pastor. But I kind of hit this wall where it's like, my wife was working. I was going to school. This is really not ideal. And uh, just had some wise older men counsel me, and they were like, you need to get a job, and you need to provide for your family at a greater level. Really called me up into that. Um, so I started doing that, um, eventually got back into, um, I didn't finish my MDiv. Uh, a, I still want to be a pastor, but not now. I need to like raise a family in my 20s and be you know, stable in that mission first. So then I, I, I got actually an undergrad in journalism. And so part of my part of that was 
I said, okay, well, I want to go back into writing then. I can do that. I know I can do that. So I ended up getting a job at the Guns and Ammo magazine family uh, in Illinois and got into this career of gun writing and hunting and reviewing firearms, which was really awesome. Uh, did that for a number of years. Eventually, as the Lord is so often, you know, just his desire to do this, uh, he brought me back to the ministry, ended up pastoring. And that was really where the masculinity stuff started because it was there that I was interacting with young men and realizing, wow, men are in a really tight spot in the church. Uh, I had been a part of several church plants, pastoral interns, stuff like that. Kind of along with the masculinity, I was realizing like a lot of these churches are really run by kind of domineering, gossipy type brawling women as Proverbs in the KJV would describe it. And so, yeah, that's really what Hard Men Podcast started with like, hey, I want to see the church grow, uh, but if it's going to grow, we have to start dealing with the household codes, you know, Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, the headship and submission and these really uncomfortable things uh, that a lot of people didn't want to talk about. Um, so that's sort of how I jumped into uh, sexuality and uh, Hard Men Podcast. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about our online music academy called VoteBergMusicAcademy.com. Katie and I actually started this online music academy seven years ago, and over that time we've been able to see thousands of students go through our courses and learn how to play the guitar, the mandolin, the fiddle, the piano, the ukulele, and bring music into their home. And we really curated these lessons so that you're able to learn with your child or you're able to learn by yourself and then bring music into your home and play with your kiddos we even have it so that you can you know subscribe to one course and have three of your kids take the same course so it's really cost effective and you're able to go at your own pace and bring music into your home go to vopermusicacademy.com and check this out okay listen up this is where it gets really good if you enter the coupon code youtube at checkout you will get 10 percent off each month's payment because it's a subscription, it's a reoccurring payment. So if you put that code in, then it's 10% off each month. So, I mean, that can really add up over time. So bring some music into your family's home. Go over to VopergMusicAcademy.com. I'll link it below. And you guys put in that coupon code and go learn how to play some piano, guitar, fiddle, mandolin, ukulele, your choice. Well, that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. You know, you, you mentioned kind of briefly your experience with your coworker who is a Christian. And she, she said, that's not how Christians act. She goes, this isn't how we behave. And then later on you said, Oh, you know, there, there are some teeth to this. There's some biblical backing to some things I attributed to the 1950s lifestyle, right? Some, some of these things that people are, are talking about as being more uh, old fashioned or traditional. And, and I wonder how you kind of came to, to that journey, because this is something that I see so often now is, I go, boy, I want there to be biblical backing to all these things, right? And then there's all these terms that are thrown out that are not inherently biblical, right? Whether that's the traditional uh, the traditional housewife or just traditional living, and you think, well, just because it's traditional doesn't make it inherently right, you know, like what you're saying, just the 1950s, there was, the people were sinning back then, you know what I mean? It might have looked different. And in, in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's given birth almost to a bunch of you know, like modern day, um, maybe in the masculinity sphere, there's this potential for like a bunch of little Don Quixotes, you know, like wanting to yeah. ride around and be like, man, the old chivalrous ways were the best. I'm going to go out there and in, in some form act how I view masculinity 50 years ago or 100 years ago being. And th there are great virtues to pull from our history and our past, but, then there, but because it's history and past doesn't inherently make it 
right. And so how do you kind of navigate that um, when you're looking at biblical backing for behavior? And the reason I brought up the girl saying Christians don't behave this way is because it seems like there's always this danger to become whatever you want to use the term legalistic or, you know, uh, you set yourself up for hypocrisy if you get specific on what behaviors are masculine or or what behaviors are feminine. And so how have you navigated that? Because I'm I'm asking because I think you've done a phenomenal job articulating that. So I don't know how you kind of came to to where you're at now with that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think what I often joke with people is they're like, no, I didn't come out of the womb being like, biblical hierarchy and all these things. Um, it was very much a, a process, you know, like I said, there was points where my wife was working and there was just tension in the relationship. I didn't know why she didn't know why, uh, we were not practicing like headship submission. I didn't really know what leadership was. So that was really a, a, a process. I think my first introduction to a lot of it theologically was through complementarian theology. So John Piper and Wayne Grudem, um, did a really, I think at the time, it was just a really helpful uh, a work. And a lot of other people collaborated on that project too. But really defining like what's the biblical view of you know, what we would call like gender roles uh, for women and for men. So I think that's where it really started for me. Eventually got into like the Council of Biblical Womanhood and Manhood, uh, which was run largely through Southern Seminary. So that was helpful that that was there. But I think one of the things that I was really encouraged in all of it, so somebody like John Piper uh, is really great specifically for saying, let's go back to the scripture. Let's go back to what does the passage actually teach? Now, some of us, even to this day, we'll, we'll disagree you know, about what that is. But generally speaking, the people who are going back to the passage and saying, what does scripture teach? I think that you're going to find that generally those people are going to be closer to the correct answer. And you know, it's like brothers, you may disagree, but you're still brothers and you're probably actually not that far away from each other. And the, you know, the culture hates both of you kind of equally. So that's maybe also, you know, are you hated for your position on sexuality? If the culture today accepts you, that's probably not good. Um, if they like your position on sexuality, probably not good uh, based on where everything's going. So I would say, yeah, generally that, that, that bent of let's, let's go back to the scripture and see what it actually teaches. So I think there is, as you said, there's a real danger particularly in like conservative circles where we idealize like time period uh, things. Like maybe it's a Victorian Pride and Prejudice era, or maybe it's like the 1950s. And in the secular world, you've actually seen this uh, alongside the manosphere. You have things like the trad wife movement. Um, Now, a lot of the things that they're saying aren't necessarily bad. I think a lot of those people probably can't ground it in scripture. Uh, But when you don't ground it fundamentally in scripture, what you end up with is oftentimes like a caricature of some sort, um, it becomes a distortion. So that's really been my encouragement is like, there actually are some historical eras. Like if you actually read the book, Pride and Prejudice, you actually see some powerful Christian themes that work in the book. Like they both, uh, Darcy and Elizabeth, they both actually repent to each other in a pretty profound way. And we're like, well, that's not feminist for one, because she does repent. She's like, you know, I was wrong. I misjudged you. Um, and, and he does as well for being, you know, proud and and arrogant and a poor communicator and those sorts of things. So I think fundamentally, then you can examine historical periods and you can actually learn a lot from them. So if you look particularly like the reformers, they had a very, very different view of human sexuality than we do today. Uh, But what's helpful in their case is like John Calvin, when he's writing about like female sins, 
they're not in a post-1960s world dominated by feminism. So their historical theological context is actually much more helpful. Um, so that's something like we've gone to that and we said, okay, yes, we want to be grounded in scripture. History, uh, history can inform us. The historical can really be actually helpful. But ultimately, we want to ground all of that in scripture. Um, what I found today generally in the response to a lot of my content is most people today in the modern church read the Bible with pink lenses and a pink highlighter. So, and what I mean by that is they'll read Jesus and they'll be like, they only want to underline the stuff in pink that's like seems pretty gentle and nice. It fits kind of the meek and mild uh, view of Jesus. Uh, but what you'll typically find, and especially in a lot of preaching too, what about when Jesus binds a, a whip together and drives the people out of the temple? Well, that's a little uncomfortable because that feels pretty masculine actually. Um, what about the passage in the Old Testament that refers to sort of this, uh, you know, pre-incarnate Jesus, this this Christic figure, the captain of the Lord's armies, and he's leading, and it says that he's a man of war. Well, what do we do with those passages? And my argument in all of this has been, I think we need to hold both of it together with Christ, and all the biblical data needs to be held together. Um, when you find men at their best, you don't find a caricature. Uh, you find guys who are, there might be a time where you're, Matthew 23, it's all woe to you, to the Pharisees from Jesus. There are times where there are real wolves in the midst of the flock, and it is not biblically righteous to be soft with them. You don't play nice with wolves who are devouring the sheep. Okay, so there, there's moments like that. There's also moments uh, where Jesus is incredibly tender. Um, he's straightforward. He's honest. He's bold with the woman at the well in John 4. Um he, he doesn't play with kid gloves with her sin, though, either. He calls her to repent. So I think being able to hold those things together, again, if you just keep going back to Scripture, saying what's the biblical picture, and then history can inform, but Scripture is, you know, it's solo scriptura. We want that to be the, the deciding factor in all of it. Yeah, with that said, you know, you've had the opportunity to not only speak to masculinity for some time now, but also interview a handful of people that yeah. are— doing the same thing, maybe from different uh, Christian traditions or maybe from different, you know, theological backgrounds. And I'm curious as to if you've found some common ground, because this is, you know, I think I said this actually in one of our podcasts a while back, that I grew up, you know, you, you mentioned the Young Restless Reform Movement. I grew up uh, kind of in the Mars, Mars Hill Church, you know, under Mark Driscoll. Yeah. And, um, and I heard so often him complaining about masculinity. And I, yet I wasn't, I, I felt like there was a lack of pinpointing, like what the problem was and how to solve the problem. Um, and I feel like that's something that can continue on to, to today being like, yeah, there's a masculinity crisis there. This is an issue men, you know, whether it's depression or mental health or just a lack of, you know, exercising their God given gifts or they're addicted to pornography or just stuck in their mom's basement playing video games. You, you're like, this is all terrible. It's, it's so bad, but I'm curious as throughout your time, do you feel like there is practical insight and advice that you can give to people? And, and again, you know, as specific as you're able to, you know, just be like, Hey, like, yeah, this is, you know, I, I've even heard you talk about like, well, you know, if, a, if testosterone is a defining difference between men and women, are there activities that can boost yeah. and enhance that? Well, let's get really practical then, you know, it's good for you to do those activities. And so what are some things throughout your, you know, throughout this journey that you've been on that you can pinpoint and be like, you know what, I can say maybe as a blatant statement, men should do this, or, 
even as a general statement, it's probably good if, if men do this. What, what are some things like that? Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I, I think I would say, uh, first of all, you're right about like Mark Driscoll and a lot of guys being able to identify the problems. Um, and there's been a lot of people who've done that. You, you can say Mark Driscoll, um, kind of the guy nobody talks about. It's who Mark was reading uh, through a lot of this is David Murrow. Uh, he, I had him on my show. He, he did a book, which is really helpful in the diagnostic part. Uh, but the book is Why Men Hate Going to Church. And he talks about the myriad ways in which the music and the setting and everything is like very feminized and why it's a deterrent to men. I, I tend to disagree with him a lot on his solutions because they're kind of like, yeah, we need like rock music and bigger mega churches and stuff like that. So I, I find that a lot of the solutions were not helpful. Hence, you know, what we're trying to do is actually give practical solutions. So when you get to the you're away from diagnostic and now you're you know prescribing treatments for people. We don't want to make, I think, a mistake that's been made often, which is sort of like the just do it platitudes, like the man up. Number one, I think you have to view men as holistic. Uh, they're the whole human picture. So you've got to look at the physical, the hormonal, the environmental. You've got to look at the spiritual. You've got to look at the whole package, the whole environment that men are raised in. And you could look at, and we have looked at, just a lot of different factors um, in terms of advice, I think that's useful. Um, generally, what I'll tell men is things like, okay, you need to be really clear in your household about what Ephesians 5 and 6 teaches and then establish the biblical hierarchy uh, that is present there. Men leading sacrificially as Jesus did, wives submitting, and then you also have children in the household code obeying and honoring their parents. So really starting with those things, and it, it gets into like, are you being an adequate provider? Is your wife home with the kids? Is she able to pour into the family? Are you even having kids? Um, those are a lot of questions we end up answering and asking with, with men. Um, surprisingly, what we found is a lot of the pastoral advice that we give to young men is very, very, very simple and practical. And you might think that like, well, why isn't it like deep theology? But it said, well, look at the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a book from fathers and mothers to their son. This is wisdom for living. Well, we've had generations of absentee fathers and mothers, so it's not surprising then that you would lack wisdom. So fundamentally, we're, we're telling them things like that. Get a job, be productive in the workforce, be the kind of guy who's high cap, be the kind of guy who can start a business, be the kind of guy who can make more than $40,000 a year, because honestly, in an inflationary world that we live in, that's probably not gonna be enough, especially if you're a sole breadwinner. So finding creative ways to help guys thrive economically becomes really important. Um, on the church front, we've really found, especially with King's Hall, men need to be connected to a mission. This is really where we talk about Christendom. We talk about you being a part of the mission, in, whether it's in your job, whether it's as a churchman, casting a positive vision that men want to be a part of. We've broken that down into a few things like theological maximalism, we want theology to come out of our fingertips. We want our theology to touch every area of life from the way you cut potatoes in the kitchen to the way that you discipline your children to the way that you repent to your children. So when you get into things like that, it's saying, okay, it means fundamentally that we have to have a clear picture of what the mission is. We're establishing legacy households. We're building uh, households that we're going to leave that legacy then to. So the legacy we define here is monetary. So you have wealth, you have faith, and we have culture. So this is why 
one of the main reasons I moved to refuge to be a part of this work uh, was something that I had meditated on for a few years. Doug Wilson often says, you can't fight a culture war without a culture. And I think so much of whatever the conservative movement is, sometimes that's church, sometimes it's political, they're generally bad at having a culture. So in the conservative movement, we have you know gay conservative talk show hosts who've adopted children talking about the problem with the left. And we're like, um, I that's I, that's actually not the culture that we're going to win with, uh, you know, sodomite marriage. That's not gonna that's not gonna do it. So then it really forces you to ask, like, how do you create a culture? How do you create a powerful tribe? Well, then you've got to be talking about things like, and, and this is where I think we've won a lot of men. You've got to be talking about what kind of worship, you know, uh, we've done covenant renewal. It's more of a liturgical worship, robust psalm singing. Um, it's not psalms or songs rather that are what we used to call seven eleven, like seven words repeated eleven times. It's actual like from scripture uh, songs that men are singing. Uh, you'll notice in a lot of like we'll, we'll use the Cantus Christi, but one of the predominant features of it is a lot of it is bass led, meaning the men are actually doing the leading in the singing, and the congregation is, and the women are following. And, and what you get is like this very weighty, it sounds like a war march when you're singing. Well, men appreciate that. Men want to be a part of that work. Um, so I think about that a lot. Um, and then I would just say some of the other practical tools uh, for getting guys involved have just been the, the counseling of practical, what's wrong with your marriage? How can you become a better parent? Um, how do you excel at work? Once you start piecing together that, plus, as I mentioned before, like physical health, weightlifting, uh, being, being a key thing. Then you're starting to talk about guys who have like better hormonal health, better health in general. They feel better. Uh, testosterone, by the way, it's like, you're, you're going to tell guys like be fruitful and multiply when your testosterone is under 300, it's, it's literally, you, you don't have very good sexual function. So like your ability to reproduce is not high. And so if you can get a lot of those things right, I think guys are typically going to thrive. And they also see that you're providing workable solutions that they're attracted to. Well, yeah, thanks for speaking to that. You mentioned the power of having a mission or being, and, you know, kind of it's almost similar to like having that vision. And I kind of want to back up because something that was always so challenging for me, and, and I'll still fight this kind of, I've, I've got this inward battle, you know, I'll read because... Uh, you know, like you said, I read John Eldridge. I was like, this guy's literally speaking to my, well, you know, my heart, you know, I was like, this is yeah. the first part. I'm like, he's, he's, he knows exactly what I'm feeling and the challenge. And I think he, he even has, um, I don't know if it's like a mantra or a theme that like every man needs to, um, have like a battle to fight or, or a, a, like a woman to win a battle to fight and, um, and something else. I think it was like a third thing that yeah. maybe like an adventure to go on or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, this sounds great. And then I think I would read other books like that too. Be like, man, these guys get me fired up. Like, this is, this is great, but it didn't seem to have this theological backbone. And I was like, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, like all of this is rubbish and to be carnal, you know, Romans eight, six, to be carnally minded is, is death. And I, and I, and so I don't know how to apply myself with a clear conscience. Like I get fired up. I want to go do better at work. I want to, this is when I'm single. I want to go get married and start a family, but then really this, these are worldly things. These are things that, um, I need to set my mind on things above, like what Colossians three tells me to do and, and not set my things here on earth. And I felt like this, this tension 
you know, where I'd read these guys and I'd be like, but they're talking about worldly adventure. God, I think God has a, a higher, more spiritual, you know, life for us. And as a result, I found myself really, like I said, in turmoil for many years as a young man. Every time I got ambition, I was like, I don't think the motive here is right. You know, and, and and it doesn't seem theologically backed. But then you talked about, man, if there's a mission that is actually grounded on the word of God that also has a practical necessity to it, then there's something that a man can really grab hold of. And so can you kind of expand upon that and maybe kind of speak to the con- those those two thoughts? Because I think that's still a very prevalent thought of to be like, hey, these are carnal things. You know, maybe maybe it's something that's kind of like a more of a, a pi- pi- pietistic um, attitude um, versus being like, no, I, I don't even know if I know the right words for it or if you even know what I'm trying to say, but if you can kind of speak to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think a big part of this, like what was the missing link, I guess, for me, because I went through all the same stuff, you kind of was really post-millennialism. And really where that comes in, uh, the book I've recommended most of all is David Chilton, Paradise Restored. What you find is that God actually has called us to this grand work of bringing the kingdom and and what we call Christendom, but bringing the kingdom of Christ to earth. The other really cool thing about this is historically, this is why you had great Christian works of Western civilization that inspire us to this day. And we tell those stories on the King's Hall. This is what gets men fired up. When you read about Arthur Guinness with this post-millennial vision where he buys a 9,000-year lease for the Guinness Beer Factory, what kind of guy does that? Because he's thinking 9,000 years ahead. Well, this is the sort of vision that inspires people. So we can even look at uh, Christian history and we can say, like, why did Alfred the Great do what he did? Because fundamentally, they believe that Christendom could be established on earth. Not perfectly. Not everything is going to be perfect. We don't expect heaven on earth. It's going to be a fight. But it's the same reason that, um, you know, most of it has been smeared today. But even with early British colonialism, you read their stated goals. It was to bring Christ to the nations. And they were actually quite effective at that for a time. Now, like many things, it's cyclical, right? You're going to have seasons where things ebb and flow. But I think fundamentally, look at those eras and you're like, well, what man didn't want to get on a boat with Shackleton to go find out what was on the South Pole? What man didn't want to go to a new continent? What man wasn't challenged by the great work set before him? And then you you think, why does all that, the, the, the post-millennial vision, um, which is really encompassing of politics, economy, all of life, the church included, why does that inspire people? Well, you go back to Genesis 128, right? Men are made to be fruitful and multiply, but why? So they can take dominion because they've been called to do that. And then, you know, one of the mistakes we make today is that the gospel like does away with the dominion mandate. And I would actually argue, no, it restores you to that purpose. It restores fallen man to the work that God created him to do. We see Christ doing this. The fulfillment, obviously, that you read of in the Psalms is and Philippians 2 and 3, but uh, all things will be fo- put under the footstool of Christ, meaning he'll reign and rule over everything, and that will be glorious. And so that's the work we've been called to. I also think, though, you can look at the antithesis in the left, and you can say, look, why is the left so effective at winning people? Because they have a post-mill vision. It's not a good one, uh, but they do have a vision. Like, you know, you think about globalism and everything that's predominant today, and they're like, we're going to win the world. We're going to get your kids. And you're like, okay, well, if if you're a Christian, what did we grow up with, though? Uh, largely what I've called pietism. And the pietism is sort of like 
all that you can really expect in life is you, me, and Jesus have a really sweet relationship. And, you know, what's been often repeated, we lose down here. You're just going to lose. You're not going to make cultural progress. You're going to see cultural regression forever until Christ returns. Well, you start thinking about those things. You're like, really, in a pietistic worldview, the only thing that matters is the church, not your business, not culture making, not really even families quite as much. Uh, the emphasis is on evangelism. So the modern church has actually done a pretty good job on evangelism, sending missionaries, uh, but not so much about culture building and culture making. Because if you think that you're going to lose, then what? why would you go play the game? Right. So what we've done is basically we said, no, we, we have this actually old doctrine from guys like B.B. Warfield and dating back a postmillennialism. And we actually think that we can, to a large degree, win. We think that Christ's reign and rule will be established on earth. And we think that this applies to every realm of life. We look at who men are again, going back to Genesis one, what they were created for. Men are made to be on an all encompassing life mission. They are culture facers, right? Men are always engaged in politics and in the economy. Why? Because they were made for those things. So the way that you win men to this grand vision is not by telling them, hey, the only function of your job is so that you can tithe to missionaries. That's the only reason you go to work. None of that work matters. You know, the only high calling is really being a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist, right? But that's what a lot of men got from the church for the, at least 100 years in the mainstream church. Now we're seeing like, Guy, when you say to a guy, come build a business for Christ and lead your men in a Christian fashion and shape your community and shape the kind of landscape that will be in Ogden, Utah in a thousand years, what do you know? All the high cap guys show up and they're like, I'm in. You have my heart. I'm in. We hear that all the time. Yeah, I believe it because it does get me fired up. And I think about any, just on a, on a basic level, any quality investment needs somewhat of a long-term vision. And oh, when it, whether it's in investing in relationships, investing financially, investing into your health, you can't do it for what you're expecting to get tomorrow or what you want to get next week. And I think a lot of uh, teaching around family, around in, in Christianity, especially for the last, you know, 60, 70, 80 years with the, with the expectation that it was the end, like, okay, he's coming back tomorrow. Yep. What motivation is there for parents to think of their grandchildren, to think of their great grandchildren and to parent their children with that with that in mind? You know, and when I look at the fruit of the home and the vision that you need as a young father or a young mother, when you're when you're changing diapers and you're and you're making the same old peanut butter sandwich, it's really hard to have any vision and and, and pour into that with excellence if you're like these kids are not going to see adulthood. These kids, yep. and they're certainly not going to get married and have kids. And the last thing they're going to see is grandkids. You know, like the, you're not going to put in quality work with that perspective. And I, I think right. we're seeing the fruit of it because you said uh, too, the people that did have a long-term vision were was the pagans and was secular society saying, "Great, like you, you guys aren't thinking about parenting. Then we'll take your kids and we'll start educating them now." And sure enough, thirty years later, forty years later. It's like they got them. They got our kids. They got, and so I do think that there needs to be somewhat, and like you said, the premillennial mindset. And I think the people that are consistent in that do preach the gospel, and they, and and I'm so grateful for that that they're out preaching the gospel and making disciples. But I'm with you that if when you realize that man, my work, 
my family, what I'm doing is the Lord's work. And that you, and you, and rather than it just being something that's pointless and maybe you can draw profit and then send somebody, um, it really is empowering. Yeah. So thank, thank you for sharing that. Now getting, getting around a family, cause you've got some children of your own. What does this look like practically for you? Cause you're obviously in, in the deep end when it comes to engaging in culture, deal, talking to men, but then you've got a home of your own, right? You've got a wife, you've got a family and you even talk about kind of some of your story. You feeling like you needed to resist ministry early on for the sake of your home and of your family. So how does this look now for you? You know, are, how many kids do you have? Are they, what are they doing for schooling? Are you homeschooling? Are you sending them to school? What does that look like? Yeah, great question. So we have uh, three boys. My oldest is 16 and they pretty much every 18 months uh, until you get to the youngest. Uh, so all three boys, uh, we started out for until about two years ago when we moved here, uh, we had homeschooled. Um, and that was largely a function of, you know, most Christian private education, very expensive. Uh, I was pastoring on a, on a pastor salary. Um, and so we had did we had done that. My wife was very faithful and carrying out a lot of that out. But especially as we got into the teenage years, um, I, you know, I work from home as well. So I was there, but it's like I started to recognize a dynamic where it was like, okay, there's just something about 15 and 16 year old boys and their mom being together all day. And a 16 year old boy who's becoming a man fundamentally taking orders from mom. And uh, so there was a lot of tension. Um, we just kind of realized as part of coming to refuge, uh, they were starting at the time St. Brennan's Academy. And uh, I really valued that at the time and more so now uh, for my boys, because here my older boys could go and could receive uh, an education that was, um, you know, you've got, we've got Headmaster Love, who is former Air Force. Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, Mr. Crawford, who teaches my oldest boys as well. He's also former Air Force. So you have these man's men who believe all the same things we do, reinforcing the same things with our boys. They just respond very differently as they get older to masculine leadership. And um, I, I, so that's been really good. Um, it's classical Christian education really seen a lot of change and growth in the boys. It was also a huge relief to my wife. Uh, she now teaches at the school uh, for the younger forms. Um, and that's been really good too, because we're all in the same building together, working on the same stuff. We're educating not only our children, but she gets to help with other children as well. Um, we often joke, it, it feels a lot like the old homeschool co-ops that we would do like yeah. at the church, you know? Um, so yeah, that was a really big formative thing. Um, the, you mentioned what I was talking about earlier, just with family needing to be the priority. Uh, fortunately for me, I just had godly older men in my life who said, listen, all the qualifications for eldership and pastor is family related. And the more I've grown in my understanding of like what God designed the family for. So even thinking about Ephesians 3, uh, the father from whom all families on earth get their name. And the word for father and for family is very, very close in connection, especially if you're looking at the Greek and Latin there for potter. So then you're thinking about it and you're like, okay, so families are the way that God has ordained to reorder the cosmos according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's hard to imagine how more significant a thing could be than the family. Like if there's one basic unit by which God has ordained to wage spiritual warfare, Nothing is more important than the family. 
again, you can look at the left and you can say, well, they know this. This is why Black Lives Matter was so anti-nuclear family. And nobody, they're like, well, why? Uh, when you read their statement before they changed it, but even now, they talk about women, they talk about children. The one person they never talk about is the father because they hate fathers. Uh, you can go back and read, I, I did this uh, a few years back, but you can read Frederick Engels and Marx and kind of Frederick Engels' first piece was against the patriarchal family. And so what he's trying to do is he, he says basically like we hate the nuclear family and we want to show that you don't need it. You can have, you know, non-monogamous relationships and this is the society that is really free and all that stuff. So anywhere and everywhere, there's an affront uh, to God's plan. It's an affront to the family, right? So again, that plays into our day-to-day -day because then we're saying like, okay, Again, we have to prioritize that above all other things, even great things like ministry and, you know, media ministry and all the things that we do there. Um, as my kids have gotten older, you know, it changes when they're young. There's a lot of just, you know, discipline and correction and don't do this and don't do that, uh, especially like 16. And and then, you know, my 14 year old, you're really talking more about like wisdom conversations, uh, discipleship as you know, brothers in Christ and as men, um, really calling them like what, what we're really aiming at now, uh, we always have been from the beginning, but especially now is like, okay, what kind of husband do you need to be? So we do a lot of like, I'll have them help lead family worship. I'll help them have them help lead with prayer. Um, you need to be able to carry the doxology, whether you're a great singer or not, carry the doxology for your family, like getting them really rooted in those Things that I know that in a very short time, they're going to have to lead their family in it. Um, and that can go to basic things like, you know, reading your Bible, making sure that that's something that you're you're leading yourself in prayer, first of all. Um, for teenage boys especially, we have a lot of conversations about the man without discipline is like a city without walls. You can't just do whatever you want whenever you want it because it feels good. You You have to be a man who can tell himself no. Um, you know, something that Doug Wilson talks about, uh, I think it's in future, it's either in future men or father hunger, but he says, you know, your, your family will face many enemies. And the first one that you have to protect it against is yourself, uh, because there are times in the flesh where you will be the enemy or your family. Um, I, I think the other thing that is sort of like, it, it's one decision we made that cascades into a thousand others. So it's a keystone decision, but that is being a part of a community like refuge telling guys and telling, showing your young men, do you as a father put a premium on the worship of God's people on Sunday, the community, the culture of your church and your place? Because generally, if you value that as a father, you know, as goes the father, so goes the family. So I think letting them see a lot of that. I think also one of the big practical things that I've, I've taught a lot to the men, especially in masculinity camps, they think it's this like bravado, like, the John Wayne, real men never apologize, uh, which is complete nonsense. One of the things I tell people, you should apologize, especially to teenage sons and daughters as they get older, but to your wife, to your children, your family, you sin a lot. And if you sin a lot and you never apologize and you never repent to them, they are going to see you for what you are, which is a hypocrite. And so in, in our household, we just have a standing practice. I, when I sin, I say to the boys, say to my wife, Publicly, if it was a public sin, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And that really sets a huge tone in the home as well. You can never be perfect, 
But what you can do is repent and do that frequently and often. And then the other thing I would say is just making sure that as men, you're working on your marriage. Um, a lot of guys will say, well, you know, you're talking about headship and submission. My wife doesn't respect me. I say, well, you know, what are you doing to lead in that front? There's probably a reason, you know, for a lot of guys, it's like if you financially wrecked your family, that is really hard to respect. So you're asking a lot of your wife. So how do you fill her bank account so that you've been depositing a lot of trustworthy things that are worthy of following? How do you cultivate your relationship? Are you making sure that you're spending quality time with her? Um, you know, to, to quote an old Matt Chandler, like, are you checking on your wife's heart? That's probably actually a good thing to be doing pretty regularly. Is she anxious? If so, why? Find out. Make sure she's reading great things. Make sure she has uh, great women in her life to emulate, who encourage her, not to gossip, that sort of thing. Um, so those are a few, I think, of the practical uh, family things that we try to implement, put a lot of mm. focus, a lot of weight on. Well, I love that, man. It gets me fired up just hearing some of those practical things. I love, yeah, I love thinking of the application in my own home. So thanks thanks for sharing all of those things. In closing, can you kind of tell us what you're up to, what you're excited about, anything people could, you know, any places people could find you or per participate? What What's happening with New Christendom Press? What's happening with Eric Kahn? Any, any new projects in the works? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of places people can follow along with the work that we're doing. Of course, new, newchristendompress.com, you can go there kind of find links to all the the individual projects i'm working on the hard men podcast uh so reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness um a lot of great content there uh, i would also point people to uh brian sauvet's work so he's got a podcast called bright hearth which is really helpful uh him and lexi working a lot of these issues out in practical everyday life uh, giving you know biblical definitions and explanations for why they do these things in community and in their household. That's been an encouragement to me, just building household. I'd also encourage people to check out Brian's Got New Music out, uh, which has been really encouraging. I've been listening to him write this for a long time and kind of crying every time he sings a song about his wife or his little girl. And um, I think people will enjoy that. So one of those songs is out for his Hearth albums. And then if people haven't checked out uh, the Psalms projects yet uh, from Brian, that's been really encouraging. Uh, uh, for the church, but also just for our family. Uh, it's been uh, really, really good. And then finally, just King's Hall, uh, King's Hall podcast. We talk about, especially season one, a lot of these visions. I know a lot of people have questions. They have never heard this before. And uh, there's actually a lot of uh, biblical and other defense, church history, theological defense for a lot of things that we're, uh, we're aspiring and setting forth as a vision. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And, and I'll be sure to link everything yeah, you said down below so that people can just find that right here. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's so, so helpful. And I just am so grateful for the work that you're doing and in, in promoting family, promoting masculinity, um, and pointing people towards the scripture and, and, and God. So thank you so much and keep up the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Been a pleasure to be on with you. <laughs>